Praise God. I tell you, God loves us and he wants us free. God wants to do so much more in our lives than what we allow him to do. It's never God that's the problem. You know, I look at it like uh, being hooked up to the city water supply or something like that. You know, they never turn the water off. It's your pipes that get clogged. They get stopped up by all of the junk that gets into our life. And when people experience problems, the average person will go to the Lord and start praying, Oh, God, I don't have joy. Would you please pour out your joy in my life? Lord, I don't feel your love. Would you please love me? You know what that is? That's like calling the city and saying, My pipes aren't working. It's not their water that's turned off. It's your line that's clogged. What you need to do is call a plumber, not the city. You need to get the blockage taken care of. And it's never God that turns off his joy, his power, his victory in your life. God is on 100% of the time. Contrary to what many of us have been taught by religion, your lack of holiness, the fact that you missed it and failed some way and are not the person that you are supposed to be, does not make God turn off the spigot and turn off the power. God is the same towards you at all times. That's what grace is all about. He moves in your life proportional to what Jesus deserves, not what you deserve. But your unbelief, not your sin, not your rebellion, but your unbelief, you are the one that stop it. When we sit there and get to thinking, but God, I know I don't deserve it. You wouldn't move in my life. You're the one that turns off the power of God. God is always the same towards you. He never changes. And if you really understood that, you know, anytime you go to experience in any lack or inadequacy in your life, instead of just embracing that and saying, well, I am defeated, I don't have this, you've already started from a position of unbelief. The Bible says we are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. God's already done all of this. And instead of saying, oh, God, I'm sick, would you please heal me? See, you've already started from a position of unbelief, contrary to the Word of God. By his stripes you were healed. Instead of you saying, oh God, I am depressed, would you please touch me? You've missed it. The Bible says that you've already got these things. Galatians 5.22, you have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And when you say, but I am discouraged. You know, I'm trying, to, I'm trying not to go on something, but I'm sure getting close to it. <laughs> Everything in my life goes back to my revelation of spirit, soul, and body. And I teach on this so much. I know that most of you have heard it, but this fits perfectly. I'm not going to spend the rest of the night ministering on this. But you know what? In your spirit, you've already got everything. And when you're sitting there, but I'm depressed. Well, you've solved the problem because you aren't in the spirit. Your spirit's not depressed. It's your flesh. It's your soul. It's your mind and emotions that get in the way. This is the problem with everything. In John chapter 10, verse 10, well, there's a lot of scriptures before that. But anyway, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and the voice of a stranger they will not follow. Most Christians say, but I don't hear the voice of God. The truth is you do hear the voice of God. God is speaking to you. You know, we've had powerful ministry this week. I've been very encouraged. It's really ministered to me and blessed me. God has been speaking but the problem is we hear that still small voice of God. We hear these impressions, but then we've got all of this carnal reasoning 
our natural reasoning, all of the things that other people have said to us, and it kind of just drowns out the voice of God. But the scripture says you do hear the voice of God. God is speaking to you. And what you've got to do is get to where you can eliminate these things, that you can eliminate the conflicting things and get down to just the Word of God. How do you know if it's God or if it's your own reasoning, flesh, fears, and things like this? How do you know? Anything God says lines up with the Word of God. The Word of God, everything you need to know is in there. And when God is speaking to you, it'll be first, it says in James chapter 3, verse 17, that the wisdom that is from above is first of all pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated without partiality and without hypocrisy. And when you are hearing from God, it'll be pure, it'll be peaceable, it'll be easy to entertain. And you can take the Word of God and it says in... Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the Word of God is quick, and that means alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joint and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The spirit is the part of you that hears the voice of God. The soul is the part of you that is plugged into this world and has all of this confusion in it. And all of your problems, all of your fears, all of your negative emotions are in the soul. And so how do you know if it's God? The Word of God will divide between soul and spirit. It will let you understand. There is a scripture that if we understood the Word, it would help you to understand. Is this God or is this me? Is this the devil? The devil will never speak consistent with the Word of God. Now, he might take a truth, like, for instance, when Satan tempted Jesus, he said, cast yourself off the pinnacle of this temple because it is written. And he quoted from Psalms chapter 91, but he misquoted it. It says, the Lord will give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all of thy ways. Satan just conveniently left that out. In other words, the promise about God's supernatural protection is when you are walking, when you are dwelling in the secret place of the Almighty and dwelling under His wings. When you are in those ways, when you're following the Lord, there is supernatural protection. He just omitted that. He said the Lord will give His angels charge over thee. And then he quoted from the next verse that says, To keep thee in all thy ways, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Satan added words to that and said, lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone, implying that it doesn't matter what you do, God is just automatically going to come through. And that's not true. You have to be in agreement with the Lord. You can't just go out here and live a life in total rebellion. It's not that God is going to hurt you. It's, it's like God's got this huge umbrella. Matter of fact, in, in Psalms chapter 91, it says, uh, what does it say? Psalms 91, verse 1. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him will I trust. And then the third verse says what? Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. It talks about being under His wings. This is a picture of like a mother hen that, you know, shields the chicks from the sun, from the rain, from the wind, from the storm. And it says, he that dwells in the secret place, not visits, but you dwell there. And the Lord shelters you and protects you. 
And if you stay under his protection, then there is all of these benefits. But, you know, if a chick ran out from under the mother hen and got wet or got hit by a hailstone or something like that, you can't blame the mother chick. That was that, I mean, the mother hen, it was that chick that went out and experienced these things. If you quit cooperating with God's leading, it's not God who punishes you and causes something bad to happen. But he has just said, here's protection under my wings. And you have to dwell there. If you quit obeying and following what God says, there is an enemy out there that's going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's trying to get at you. And it's not God who causes the problems. It's just you ran out from under this protection. If you're walking along with me and if I've got an umbrella up here and if you step out from under the umbrella, I didn't make you wet. It was just raining. You got wet because you got out from under the protection. And so God said that there would be this supernatural protection, but you have to cooperate. I was headed someplace with that, but I, I got off the subject explaining it. But it was good. Amen. Look over here in Ephesians chapter 1. This, the book of Ephesians goes along with what I'm trying to say what I feel impressed here is going on tonight. In a, the book of Ephesians, if you were to read it, is written from a different standpoint than what most people think. And the whole book of Ephesians, I could go through here and just show you verse after verse after verse after verse that the Apostle Paul is saying things from a completely different paradigm. He has a different way of looking at things than what the average person looks at things. You can see this right here in the third verse, the first chapter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath... That means it's already happened. Who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus... The average Christian is asking God to bless them. They are running after the blessings. They go from meeting to meeting to meeting. They ask person to pray for them over and over and over, and they are just waiting on God to bless them. This whole book is written from the standpoint that God has already blessed you. He's already done it. And people just have a disconnect here because they go look in the mirror and they say, no, I'm not blessed. I can still see the problem. I still have the pain. Here's the doctor's report. Here's my banker's report. Nothing has changed. I'm not blessed. It says he's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean that it's real. It just means that everything that you receive from God comes through the Spirit first. It doesn't come from the outside in. It comes from the inside out. God is a Spirit. And what you do is you receive His blessing in your spirit, you are blessed with all spiritual blessings. If I can talk fast enough, I'm going to go on down in the rest of this chapter and I'll show you that it says that he's already given you everything. Everything. If you need healing, you've already got it. It's in your spirit. If you need joy, you've already got it. It's in your spirit. If you need love, you've already got it. If you need peace, you've already got it. Everything you need is in the spirit. And and this is written from the standpoint of what God has already done. And then the rest of this book is how to renew your mind and start drawing out what you already have on the inside of you. That's a huge difference between the way that most people look at this. But this says he's already blessed you in the next verse in verse 4. According as he hath, this is past tense, 
chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Let me ask you, what, were, what had you done, good or bad, before the foundation of the world to make him choose you? See, again, we get this whole thing muddled up because we think we have to do all of these things to make God do it. This says he's blessed you to the degree that he's already chosen you in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. You hadn't done anything good or bad. You didn't even exist. And yet God chose you. In his foreknowledge, he knew what was going to happen. And God has already chosen to bless every one of you. You know, I'm not going to go into great detail on this, but I was studying the book of Revelation the last couple of weeks, and it talks over there about that if you will respond and overcome, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. And I got to meditating on that. And you know what this implies is that God writes everybody's name in the book of life. In other words, he's made the provision for every single person. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says he's the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He, prayed for every, he paid for everybody's sins. So he writes your name in there, but you have to accept it. And if you don't accept it, he'll blot your name out. Not everybody's name is in the book of life. You can read that in Revelation chapter 19 and 20. But it was in there. He doesn't write with indelible ink. It can be erased. And if you don't accept the atonement that he made, if you stand on your own goodness or whatever, he'll blot it out. But you know what? He's made provision for everyone. He wants every single person to be healed, but he doesn't force it upon you. You have to reach out and receive it. God has already done these things. He hath chosen us in him. Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. That says he has already predestinated us. If you put this together with Romans chapter 8, I believe it's verse 29 and 30, it says those who he foreknew he did predestinate. This isn't talking about that some people are predestined to salvation and some are predestined to damnation. Romans 8, 29 is the key, and it says there that he, those who he foreknew. In other words, he knows whether you're going to accept him, and if you choose him, only those who choose him are predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. It is going to happen. You are going to be just like Jesus. If you'll cooperate right now, it can happen now to the degree that you renew your mind. But if you just live your life in unbelief and never learn the truth, well, then when you see him, you will be like him, for you will see him as he is, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, and you'll be changed then. But sooner or later, those of you who've truly been born again are going to be just like Jesus. In your spirit, you're already that way. To the degree you renew your mind, you can have it right now, and it's predestinated. And the last part of that, it says, according to the good pleasure of his will. I've read this in some of the other translations, and uh, basically what it's trying to commute, it, communicate is that God did these things because it is His pleasure for you to be like Him. It goes along with Psalms chapter 35, verse 27, that says, Let all who favor my righteous cause say continually, Let God be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of His servants. God is pleased when you prosper. It does not bless God when you struggle. That is not God, contrary to religion. God wants you to prosper. He's already predestinated you to it. That's what 
pleases him. That's the pleasure of his goodwill. In the next verse, it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath, again, this is past tense, made us accepted in the beloved. Did you know that the term there, accepted in the beloved, that uh, Greek word is only used twice in the New Testament? Anybody know where the other time is? When the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary and he said, Hail thou that art highly favored. That's what it means. The same thing that he said to Mary about being highly favored, we are now highly favored. We are accepted in the beloved. It has already happened. You don't have to do things to make yourself accepted. God accepts you because he accepted Jesus. And when you choose Jesus, you automatically get in on his righteousness and his acceptance. And so anyway, I'd, I'd never get over to these other verses, but you can just keep reading these verses. And every one of them is talking about how it's already done. Again, most Christians are trying to get these things. They're trying to get God to bless them. They're trying to get God to be pleased with them. But we're already accepted. He's already pleased with us. And so we need to change our understanding. And down here in the 14th verse, Paul begins to start praying a prayer. And before I read this, let me just ask you this question. If you were to be asked tonight, if, say for instance, this is one of our assignments in the Bible school. I want you to write a prayer for people 2,000 years in the future. And suppose, you know, we have a time capsule or something, and we're going to put this in there, and if the Lord tarries 2,000 years in the future, they're going to read this prayer. How would you pray for people 2,000 years in the future? What would you ask? And, you know, just based on my relationship with people and hearing thousands and thousands of people's prayers... It would be something about, oh, God, just pour out your spirit. God, send a revival. God, touch these people. God, do a new thing. Rend the heavens and come down. It would all be pleading with God to move and do something special with those people. That's the way that most people pray. Now, look at Paul's prayer, because here he is praying a prayer that we're reading 2,000 years later, and look at what he prays in verse 14. Or excuse me, it starts in verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all of the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now in a sense he's asking for something, but what's he asking? That they would just get revelation of what they've already gotten. If you go back up into these previous verses, I skipped over them, but it says he's already abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence and knowledge. So truthfully, he's already even given you wisdom. The Holy Spirit is sent to lead you into all truth and teach you all things. So technically, you don't even have to pray and ask God to do this. He's already commanded the Holy Spirit. He's sent him here to teach us and lead us into all truth. But this is just praying that we would receive this spirit of wisdom and knowledge. And here in verse 18... Um, it says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You know, again, you can just go through every single verse and it's saying the same thing. The glory of God isn't just in heaven, it's in the saints. It says over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that you have been called to the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And this isn't something that just takes place in heaven. It'll be completed in heaven when we get a glorified body and a soul that no longer shields it and blocks that from flowing. But in your spirit right now, you are as holy and pure and righteous as Jesus is. You have his glory, his knowledge, his power. You've already got it. And he's praying here that you would understand the exceeding riches of the glory of his inheritance that's in the saints. You know, if somehow or another you could see heaven open and see the glory of God in heaven, did you know that you have that same thing on the inside of you? If God had to replace what you have on the inside of you right now, it would bankrupt heaven to be able to replace it. You hadn't got just a tiny bit of glory. You got the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. He's living on the inside of you. And you're perfect in your spirit, man. The problem is we very seldom look at ourselves in the spirit. We're operating in our five senses, going by what we can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. But this prayer is praying that you would get the spirit of wisdom and understanding and begin to understand Get your eyes open so that you can understand the hope of his calling. This goes along with Colossians 1.27. It says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You need to get a revelation of Christ living in on the inside of you, that you've got the glory of God on the inside of you and the exceeding riches of the inheritance. And then in the next verse, verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. This word according to means to the proportion of or to the degree of. He wants you to see the exceeding greatness of his power towards you. The same power, it's according to, proportional to, the same power that he used when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And has made us head over all of these things. That's what it goes on to say through the rest of the chapter. And yet I constantly come up against Christians that are praying and saying, oh God, just give me more power. How do you square that with what Paul is saying? You've already got the same power that raised Jesus Christ living on the inside of you. And yet we're asking God for more power. We're asking God for joy when the truth is you've got joy unspeakable and full of glory. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace and all of these things. Brothers and sisters, the truth is that we've already got all of these things on the inside of us. It is not God who hasn't given. It's us. It's our dullness our inability to perceive these things that's the problem. And this whole book of Ephesians is written from the heavenly standpoint, what you have in Christ, and it's just saying these things to help you to understand, to receive the revelation of what God has already done. We aren't trying to go towards a victory. We're coming from a victory. God has already done it. 
It's already done. It's like I mentioned either last night or this morning or something about this pastor in uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts, that he had been preaching from the wrong side of the cross. Most of us are looking towards the cross, praying and asking God to do something. But the truth is, God did everything he was ever going to do through Jesus. He's already reconciled us. He's already forgiven your sins. He's already prospered you. He's already commanded his blessing upon you. You're already blessed with all spiritual blessings. You're already reconciled. You're already the accepted in the beloved. God has already done everything. You don't need God to do anything. All you need is revelation of what he's already done. And your faith opens up that valve and lets all of these things that are in your spirit come out and flow through you. You've already got it. Man, that is pretty powerful. That is pretty awesome. He just keeps saying this over and over. Chapter 3, there's another prayer. I'm going to skip over that. But in chapter 3, it talks about that if you were rooted and grounded in love, you would be able to comprehend with all saints what is the height, depth, length, and breadth. It didn't say that you'd be able to get God to give you more love, that you'd, you'd release more love towards you. No, you've already got it. You would just be able to comprehend with all saints the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth, and to experience the love of God, which passes knowledge. There's something better than just knowing it with your head. You need to experience it is what he's talking about here. And it just continues to go on through all of these things. Look over in the fourth chapter and in verse 18, 17 and 18. And again, I wish to add time to put all of this in its perspective. But in verse 17, it says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Man, that's a mouthful. And again, if you go back and study this, the whole book has been talking about what you've already got. God opened up their eyes to it, helped them to be rooted and grounded in love so that they could perceive the height, the depth, and the length, and the breadth. He's not asking God to give you anything new, but he's asking God to give you a revelation and make it clear what you've already got. And now he's saying, now, here's the opposite of what I'm talking about. Don't be as a Gentile. The word Gentile here is talking about a non-believer. Of course, in the Jewish, uh, you know, situation that they were in, this was talking about a person outside the nation of Israel. But in our day, this is talking about a person who's not a believer. Don't walk like an unbeliever. Don't talk, don't work, walk like a man who's not saved is what he's talking about. And he begins to describe this. Um, Mr. Page. He began to describe it in verse uh, 18 right here. Walk as the unbelievers or the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. You know, this word vanity, I looked it up, and it took me a little while to relate to what he was saying. But the word vanity literally means the inutility and the transientness of your mind is what the word vanity means here. And I got to thinking about that. Inutility just means you aren't utilizing it. You aren't using what you've got. And you know, this is very descriptive of a lost person. They just don't think. They're like an animal that live by emotions. Thank you for those couple of head nods. 
I skipped these verses, but over in chapter 2, he says that before you were born again, we were all children of the devil. We're by nature a child of the devil. People don't like to admit this, but you know what? They think that lost people are just uh, innocent people. They are people that are actually demon-possessed. It says the spirit of this world works in us. Some of you don't believe that. Look in chapter 2. In verse uh, 1, it says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. This says that there is a demonic spirit, the prince of the power of the air, working in you before you were born again. I know a lot of people don't agree with that, but this is what the Bible says. Most people don't let the Bible influence what they believe, but you should. This says we all walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. I'll also give you a clue. This is said again over in the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians. It says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, verse 12, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. It's not just natural, the opposition that the unbelievers have against the believers. You know what's going on in our nation, what's going on in every nation? It's a spirit of antichrist. There is a demonic spirit that opposes anything that's good and godly. I just saw on the internet this week that over in the UK, they actually took two women and fired them because they wore a cross, a necklace with a cross, and they refused to allow them to wear a cross because that's offensive. They don't do that with a symbol of uh, Islam. They don't do that with these veils that they wear. They don't do that with the sheiks or Sikhs that wear the turbans. See, they allow all of these things, but if it's Christian, there is a spirit of Antichrist. It is not just normal. It's not just carnal. It's demonic. Before you were born again, you were demon-possessed. <laughs> well, David agreed. I don't know if anybody else agreed, but David agreed. But it's true. All of us were, it goes on to say, or he's still in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And people think, well, that's just the way lost people are. That's just natural. No, it says, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Your nature was a fallen nature. You'll hear a lot of people today say, people are basically good. That's a lie. People are basically bad. We are all headed to hell. We were all by nature a child of the devil. That doesn't mean that there isn't anything good in a person, but I can guarantee you, your nature is by nature wrong. You do not have to teach a child to be selfish, to steal, to lie, to hit, and to do things. It comes naturally. We were all by nature a child of the devil. There is a spirit at work. And this, going back to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18, it says, don't be like the Gentiles who walk in the vanity of their mind, not utilizing their mind. Lost people are driven by their hormones, by their feelings. Amen. You know what causes adultery? Again, people think, well, it's just human. It's just, no, it's, it's your hormones. 
there's a scripture, I think it's in Psalms chapter 32. I'd have to look this up, but it says, don't be as the horse or as the mule who have no understanding. Remember over here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 says, walk not as the Gentiles in the vanity of the mind, having their understanding darkened. A horse or a mule doesn't have any understanding. Now, this is not to say they don't have a brain. They do have a brain. I've had horses all of my life. And you know, horses, you can teach them things. Horses are really pretty smart. You can teach them to do a lot of things. I've seen horses that will open up doorknobs that if you put one of these little chains or, or um, I forgot what you call it, but anyway, one of these things that sticks in a hook, a latch on something, you can teach them how to open that. You can teach them how to open up gates. You can teach horses things, but they can't figure it out on their own. They have a brain, but it has to be programmed. They have to be told what to do. I actually, when I was going over to England, um, I had these horses, and I had, I think I had uh, four or five at that time, and I had this mare that had just had a foal, and I had a stud. And this stud was really interested in this mare. And he had already had one fold, and I didn't want to have a second fold. I already had four or five horses. I couldn't feed any more, and I wanted to keep him away. So I was in the process of building this fortress to put the mare in because this, I don't know if any of you have been around a horse, but if you see a stud around a mare that's in heat, it's scary. They will do anything. I mean, they just, it's scary. It's one of those it's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. So I was cutting down these logs that were this big around. And I was building this fortress to keep this stud away from the mare. And I didn't get it finished before I had to go to uh, England. And so I only had three sides of this thing done. The fourth side was undone. And so I, I couldn't put the stud in there and keep him shut up. And I got to praying, God, what do I do? And the Lord spoke to me this scripture about don't be as a horse or a mule that have no understanding. And I thought, you know what? They, they can think, but they don't understand. They just let their hormones rule. So you know what I did? Instead of building this structure to keep the stud shut up, I put the mare and her foal inside there. And the reason for this, you know, horses have personalities. And this mare, you could put a piece of barbed wire on the, on the ground. It didn't have to be sticking up. You could just lay it on the ground. And if she saw that barbed wire, she would not step across it. She was so scared of barbed wire. So I just put barbed wire on the fourth side, and she would never go out. And I put the stallion out on the outside and he had all of my property available. He would go through a barbed wire fence. He could jump over it. Those things didn't stop him at all. But you know what? I knew what he was going to think. All he was going to be interested in was that mare. And all he would have to do is just go around the corner and come in through the barbed wire. But he wasn't smart enough to figure that out. And I left him for three weeks. And when I got back, there was a trench at least six to eight inches deep all along there where he had just run and pawed the ground, but he had never gotten smart enough to go around and come in the back way. And my mare was safe and everything was fine. You know why? Because a horse, it's just hormones. And there's people that are just like that, that man, if they would sit down and use their head for something besides a hat rack, they would never do what the stuff that they do. 
If you would sit down and think about what's this going to do to my marriage? What is this going to do to my career? Take something like Jimmy Swaggart, who in 1998, I think it was, was caught with these prostitutes. This man had $8 million a month coming into his ministry in 1998. It was like 10 times bigger than any other Christian ministry in the United States or in the world. He was reaching more people than any person in the history of the world. God was using this man. Awesome things were happening. And he went in and hired prostitutes and went to a hotel room with them. You know what? That's nothing but hormones. If he would have used his head and have sat down and said, what's this going to cost me? He'd have never done it. Adultery is not smart. Sin isn't smart. If you would sit down and think about it, you'd not sin. Lost people aren't using their brain. They're in the inutility, the vanity of their mind. They're just, well, I feel this. And sad to say, many of us, even after we're born again, are still operating like that. That's what Paul's warning against. Don't be like a lost man that doesn't use your brain. Sit down and consider. It says in Proverbs chapter 4, around verse 24, 25, it says, ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Think about what you're doing. Think about the consequences of what you're doing. How's this going to affect me? How's this going to affect my family? How's this going to affect my kids? How's this going to affect my income? How's this going to affect my health? People wouldn't be alcoholics. They wouldn't drink. They wouldn't smoke. They wouldn't do drugs if they thought about how this is going to shame them, how it's going to affect relationships, how it's going to affect their employment, how it's going to affect their body. But they just refuse this. They just push it all out of the way and they just are going by their feelings. They feel so miserable that anything is worth a momentary high, a momentary escape. And yet the next day, everything's worse. You now lost money, you hurt your health, you're ashamed, you're dealing with guilt and condemnation. It's not smart. Sin isn't smart. Sin's always emotional. So he's saying, don't be like a lost man that doesn't use your brain. Use it. And then the next thing, it says the transientness. That's the definition of the word vanity. Don't be like a lost man who operates in the transientness of his mind. You know, transient means that you don't have a certain dwelling place. You're always moving around. When I was a kid, they used to call bums. They'd either call them bums or transients because they didn't have a house. They'd just move from place to place. They were nomads moving around all of the time. And this is what it's depicting is a person who's not focused on a purpose. Paul said in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, I believe it was, this one thing I do, that's the key to success, is being focused, having a purpose. Barry referred to that to this morning when the Lord touched him and he just became consumed, separated from everything else and focused on what God called him to do. That's what you've got to do to prosper. And it's contrasting this and saying, don't be like a lost man who's just transient. He never is focused on anything. His mind just flits from thing to thing. They don't have a purpose. They don't have a goal. They're just going through life, being entertained, but no focus on anything. That's a strong word. You know what? God, I believe, has brought people here this week trying to get you to focus, trying to get you to make a commitment to make your life count. This isn't a dress rehearsal. This is a real deal. The clock is ticking. 
And you know what? Many of us, you wake up. I believe the reason people go through midlife crisis is because they wake up about 40 and they say, hey, I'm at least halfway through this thing. And where's my life going? What have I accomplished? Where am I going to go? And then all of a sudden they, they enter into this crisis because it dawns on them. I've burned half of my life. I've wasted it. What have I done with my life? What legacy am I going to have? If I die, is anybody going to miss me? And that's when they start having midlife crisis and they put it off to your hormones or to, you know, some, something going on in your body. No, it's the fact that that's about when most people wake up and realize I've blown it. I hadn't got a purpose. I'm not going anywhere. And he's warning you not to be like that. You need to have a purpose for your life. This is the only life you've got. You need to be focused. You aren't going to reach your full potential unless you devote yourself 100% to a single thing. Amen? So don't be like a Gentile, a lost man that doesn't use their mind. And then in verse 18, having the understanding darkened. You know, I've already talked a little bit about that, but in the book of Proverbs, it says wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all you're getting, get understanding. Understanding is the ability to take knowledge. You know, a computer, you can put knowledge into com a computer. You can program a computer. It'll have all this information in there, but you couldn't, like for instance, you couldn't put all of this information in there about finances and say, all right, so what does this mean? Does this mean that people who do this are irresponsible. A computer can't come to conclusions. It can't reason. It doesn't have understanding. You can fill it with knowledge, but understanding is the ability to, to take knowledge and put it together and connect the dots and come up to conclusions and make application. Wisdom is the application after you get understanding. So knowledge is one thing, but then you have to have the understanding what this means. What does this mean to my life? How do I apply this? What do I do with it? Wisdom is then the application of it. And this says that if you aren't using your mind, if you are walking like a Gentile, if you're operating contrary to what he's saying in this book and you're asking God to do all of these things instead of getting the revelation of what he's already done, then it blinds you. It darkens your heart. It stops this understanding. I don't know if you're getting what I'm saying here, but there's a tremendous amount of Christians that this is where they live. It's just like, God, it's so hard. I can't understand these things. And it's because we've got a wrong paradigm. We're approaching God, asking Him to do things. Daniel talked about this the other day, that most praise and worship is trying to get into the Holy of Holies instead of starting from there. And it's frustrating trying to get into some place you're already in. It's frustrating trying to get God to do something that He's already done. And it's, there's a lot of people who just don't have understanding of this. And because their understanding is darkened, then the next thing it says, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. And this is where most of us, sad to say, live, is that we are ignorant of what God's already done. Our understanding is darkened. We aren't using our mind. We aren't focused. We're letting the cares of this life and all of these things choke the word. And because of it, we don't have understanding. We are darkened. We are alienated from the life of God that is within us because of the blindness of their heart. And this word blindness here is the exact same word that's translated hardness other places when it talks about hardness of heart. If you've ever heard my teaching 
on hardness of heart. I got a whole series about what that causes. And it just makes you spiritually retarded is what a hardened heart is. I mean, the lights are on, but nobody's home. The disciples, he asked them, he says, you know, how are we going to feed the multitude? He had already fed the 5,000 with five loaves and uh, two fish in the sixth chapter of the book of Matthew. Then in the eighth chapter, he had less people, 4,000 people. He had seven loaves this time, more food, less people. And he says, how are we going to feed these people? And it was like uh, they had never experienced him multiplying the loaves before. They didn't have a clue. They just said, man, 600 penny worth isn't enough to feed all of these people. They pulled out their wallet and looked only in the natural realm like they had never been there. And so he began to say to them, Matthew, or Mark chapter 8, verse 17, he says, Don't, do you not perceive yet? And do you not understand is your heart still hardened? He linked having a hardened heart to your inability to perceive and understand. And that's exactly what Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18 does. Your understanding gets darkened. It blinds you. It hardens your heart and alienates you from the things of God through the ignorance that's in us. So anyway, I got off on all this tonight by saying that God's already done everything. We don't need to pray for God to do it. What we've got to do is to renew our mind, and that is up to us. The Holy Spirit is sent to give us this revelation and to explain these things to us. But you know what? You've got to show up for class. The Holy Spirit's willing to teach, but it takes focus. You can't have your mind just going everywhere. You've got to be focused on God. You've got to seek God. You've got to put God first, this one thing you do. And when you do that, I guarantee you, the Holy Spirit wants you to understand and to remove this blindness and to change our paradigm more than we want it to, under, to change. The problem isn't with God. The problem's always with us. Amen? So what this does for me, somebody says, so what do you do with all this information? It really inspires me that, you know what, I've got to just put effort into this. I've got to seek God. I can't just sit there and pray and wait on God to do something. God's already done His part. I'm not waiting on God. God's waiting on me. He's waiting on you. God's already done it. God's got a perfect plan for every person's life in here. You don't have to pray and ask God, Oh God, please give me a purpose. God's already done it from the beginning of creation. We read that over there in the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 1, he chose you in him. He wants you to see the exceeding greatness, or let's see, see the um, Ephesians 1.18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may see the hope of his calling. He wants you to see the hope of his calling. He's already called every single one of you. It's already been done. You don't have to get God to give you a purpose. He, he created you with a purpose. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul said, who, God, who separated me from the, uh, my mother's womb unto the gospel. It was from the mother's womb. In, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, the Lord spoke to Jeremiah and says, Before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you and I ordained you to be a prophet unto the nations. God's already got a purpose for every single person's life. Every one of us already have a purpose. We don't have to get God to give us a purpose. He's already done it. We need to get a revelation of God. What is it that you made me for? Why am I here? Why do I live at this time? 
Why am I a male or a female? Why do I have the color skin that I have? Why do I have these talents and gifts and ability? What is your purpose for my life? Everything about you is ordained by God for a purpose. You don't have to get God to give you a purpose. You just got to discover what it is. Renew your mind. Seek these things. And I guarantee you, God wants to reveal these things to you more than you want it. But the problem is, you've got to seek to find. Let me close with this verse. I know some of you are wondering if I'm ever going to close. Look over in Jeremiah chapter 29. This is a real familiar passage of Scripture, often quoted. But you've got to look at it in the context. Jeremiah chapter 29 And in verse uh, 11, I mean, Isaiah, no wonder that didn't look right. <laughs> Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. Other translations like the NIV says a hope and a future. That's a powerful verse, and people often quote that, but then look at the verses surrounding it. Verse 12, it says, Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. People just think that Jeremiah 29, 11 comes to pass automatically because God has good plans for you. God has plans, good plans for everyone to give you a hope and a future, or I actually like the way it says it in the King James, an expected end. I like that because you know what that means is I don't have to say, well, God, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know, you know, at the end of my life, I don't know if I'm still going to be walking in blessing and health and joy and peace, and I don't know what's going to happen to me. Other people have tried, and they, they get a stroke, and they wind up having Alzheimer's, or this happens to them, and you just never know what's going to happen. No, you can have an expected end. God's God promises that according to your days, so shall your strength be. That Moses was 120 years old. His natural force wasn't abated, nor his eyesight dim. We've got promises. And if you would follow what God has for you, you can have an expected end. You can be like Paul, say, I have run my race. I've finished the course. I know that I'm going to come unto you in the blessing of God. You don't have to wonder about what the future is like if you're standing on the Word of God and operating in faith. You can have an expected end. You can say, I'm going out with the shout. I'm not going to go out with a whimper. Amen? I like that. It gives me assurance. And so we say that God's got a plan and an expected end for us, but it's conditional on you seeking and you shall find when you shall search with all your heart. And there's a lot of people that say, all right, God, I'm going to give you this weekend, and if you can change my life and come into campus days and tell me everything I need to know, I'll give you this weekend. And if it doesn't work, you'll go back to doing what you're doing. Or some people will say, God, I've got 10 minutes before my favorite show, my favorite sports thing comes on, and if you can speak to me in the next 10 minutes and change my life, have at it. And we give God little windows of opportunity. That's not searching with all of your heart. You've got to get to a place to where, you know what, you are just sick and tired of being sick and tired and you aren't going to live this way anymore and I am not going to do this. I'm going to seek and I'm not going to quit until I find. I had a woman come up, I think it was this morning, saying that she had been healed of stage four cancer. 
and she praised God for it. But she says, it's come back two or three times and I keep fighting it and overcoming it. What's wrong and what do I have to do? And I said, you know what? I don't know. I can't control what the devil does. The devil's just stupid. Who knows why he does what he does? I can't control and say that you're never going to have cancer come against you. But look at it this way. You beat it two or three times. Who cares if it comes back a dozen times? Just take the same thing you've already done and beat it and just get to a place to where I don't care what it takes. I'm not going to resist for a little bit. I said the devil's trying to wear you down. And the only reason he keeps attacking you is because he can see that it's having an effect on you. And you're asking this question. You just need to reach a place where I'll fight him as many times as I need to. Amen. It's like beating up a bully. You just knock him down. If he gets up, knock him down again. If he gets up, just keep knocking him down. You just fight until you win. Some people are determined, see, I'm only going to seek the Lord so far. And if it doesn't work, well, then here's plan B or plan C. No, you need to get to a point that I'm going to find out God's purpose for my life. I'm going, to, I'm going to get these things and I'm going to seek and I know I'm going to find when I search with all of my heart. The Lord didn't promise that you'd get all your questions answered in the next 30 minutes. But if you'll seek with all of your heart, God will reveal himself unto you. And I tell you, God's already done everything. It's just a matter of you opening up your heart, seeking with all of your heart, and beginning to open up your heart, and God will do some awesome, awesome things in your life. Amen? Amen? Amen. God's a good God all of the time. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for these truths that I've talked about. We thank you for the people's lives that were touched tonight, for the healings, the deliverance, the things that happened. And Father, we believe that you are much, much greater and bigger than any of us have ever experienced. And Father, we just welcome you to open up our understanding. We pray this prayer from Ephesians chapter 1, that you would give unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that you would open up the eyes of our understanding and help us to see the hope of the calling that you've given us, the exceeding riches of the glory of the inheritance that's in us. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is already living in us. Father, we pray that you'd help us to see that, that we would use our minds, begin to be focused on you and seek with all of our heart. And Father, I thank you that this will remove the blindness that it will allow us to begin to start receiving from you. And that, Father, we will see and experience your goodness operating in our lives. We thank you for that. And we just cooperate with that in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Praise God. Well, you know, if you were receiving earlier, you should have already gotten everything you need. I've already prayed over everything I can think of. So praise God, you should be healed. I would like to ask our prayer team, if for some reason somebody needs something that we didn't, call out. If you would come, if we could get our students that have been through the healing school ministry to come down here, we'll have them stand across the front. And if any of you need any prayer or ministry and anything, you're certainly welcome to come. Could we get our prayer ministers to come down here and let's stand across the front and give you an opportunity. Gary, do we have any refreshments back there tonight? Nope. We aren't doing that for you this year. We don't like you as well as the other groups. Amen. So anyway, uh, we'll be back here in the morning at what, 7 o'clock for breakfast. 
And 8 o'clock will be our last sessions. It'll go on all the way through noon. But we'll be back in the morning. So if you want prayer for anything, come down here and let one of our prayer ministers pray with you and the rest of you. God bless you. You are dismissed.